Okay. Hi, Tammy. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna jump right in since I do have to end early today. So we are picking up on chapter 16 and we are on verse 14. We're on page 172 for those of you who are following along in the text. Hi, Michelle. Hi. Um, and I got such a nice message. I have to tell you before we start from somebody who studies muster with me. And she said that, um, actually I'm going to read it to you because it's, I think it's very, maybe some of you can relate to this. <laughs> um, I have to tell you that this two week period without class has reinforced for me the wisdom of having a regular Torah or Talmud or muster study. I just did not feel like my best version of myself when we didn't have class. Too quick to jump to wrong conclusions, too quick to judge, impatient, etc. Today's class alone has helped me to slow down, to breathe, and has me feeling more like the person I want to be. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. Um, but I hope that you guys were able to use your mustard tools over our little break, um, particularly if you were around a lot of family in close quarters over the holidays, you may have had to flex your muscle muscles. <laughs> so, you know, uh, hopefully we have, we are well fortified on that, on that front. Okay. Hi, Dana. And hi, Robin and Debbie. Hi, everybody. All right. Chapter 16, verse 14. So we were talking about when we left off three weeks ago about a king, right? We're talking about a Jewish king um, who has a greater degree of responsibility in terms of leadership and in terms of setting an example. Um, but really the, the, the lessons that apply to a king um, can very well be applied to many of us as well, especially where we also exert any degree of leadership in our lives. Okay. So uh, verse 14 goes like this. Uh, Hamat Melech, Malachi Mavet. Uh, the wrath of a king is as a messenger of death, right? Some of you might be familiar with the term Malachi Mavet, right? The Malachi Mavet means the angel of death. Um, and the idea is that God gives certain jobs into the hands of a messenger. And it is the job of the Malachi Mavet to, you know, take a person's life when it's time for them to, to take the life. The Malachamaves, interestingly, also makes an appearance in the song Chagadja. For those of you who sing that song, right at your Passover Seder. So we say, you know, uh, father brought the goats and then the cat, uh, I forgot that bit the goat, I think, and then the dog bit the cat, and then the stick hit the dog, and then the water, and the all. all. Now we have the ox and the butcher and the malachamavas, and then God, right? It's this like hierarchy of uh, of power to to destroy. Many many explanations about this metaphor that is Chagadia, but that's the malachamavas, the angel of death. So what we're saying here is that the anger of a king is like the messenger of death, which on a simple level simply means, right? If a king, and, you know, we're talking about like, you know, not the way, you know, not the way most countries, most, I, I shouldn't say most countries, not, not the way most ethical democratic countries work today, but back in the day, right, or in many dictatorships, a king can just say off with his head, and that would be the end. So literally, the wrath of a king is the angel of death. If you anger the king, forget it. It's curtains for you, pal. It's game over, Right. So, hey, hey, Lisa, so good to see you. Hi. 
Um, we have a story like this in the, the Parm story, in the Megillah, where Esther is asked by Mordechai to go before the king, Ahasuerus, and plead the case for her pe people, right? And she says to Mordechai, listen, I can't go before the king um, because I have, it, I have to be called. I have to be summoned to the king. And if I'm not summoned, if I just show up before the king, right? So this was the big crime. You just show up before the king without being summoned, you could lose your life, you know? That's how it was back in the day. You know, we're, we're, we're so kind of used to our democratic countries. And, you know, we have many gripes about how our countries are run and about, you know, politics and all of this. But we kind of have to remember, like, that's how it used to be back in the day. You cross the king, forget it. Your life was over. There didn't need to be any pretext. There didn't need to be any court case. You didn't get a lawyer. You know, this was how it was. Hi, Avril and Sydney. Good to see you both. So... Um, okay, so the anger of a king is like the messenger of death. The Ishchacham, for those of you who came around page 172, chapter 16, verse 14, um, the Ishchacham, but a wise person will pacify it. A wise person knows how to diffuse anger. De-escalation is an incredible wisdom. A person who knows not how to get, not get to, who, sorry, knows how to not get sucked into the drama and the emotionality and the escalation of a moment, but rather who knows how to diplomatically, calmly de-escalate a situation. Um, I was listening to, oh, what was it? A podcast? It was a YouTube interview, I think by this uh, journalist, her name is Megan Phelps Roper. She is a fascinating person. Has anybody here ever heard of her, Megan Phelps Roper? Her family uh, ran the Westboro Baptist Church, which was later classified as a hate group. They used to like pick it and write horribly hateful things about people. Uh, and she, in her 20s, was very active in her church. And, and she felt like this is what God wants. God wants us to pick it and, you know, to, to, to insult people who don't follow what they consider to be the word of God. Anyway, long story short, she ended up leaving the Baptist church, the Westboro Baptist Church. And now she's a journalist and she's very into um, encouraging people of different ideologies to speak to one another. So when, uh, so anyway, she, she was running this, um, this YouTube interview, which was so interesting. And one of the things that was going on there was there was this gentleman who was being interviewed, I forgot his name. And he was, he used to be a college professor and he was, he was, the interviewer was asking him about this particular moment. There was a demonstration on campus, which, okay, fine. That, that's nothing unusual. And the, the students were extremely angry at him about something he had written or posted that they felt was unconscionable. And they were like, I mean, angers were very, very inflamed and emotions were extremely high. And there were, there's video footage of him being like, I mean, when you see the way they are protesting and heckling him, like you're like, they could get, this could get violent. And he's there and he's staying calm and he's responding with calm and just answering the question. He was like, I really thought someone was going to throw a brick at my head. And he just de-escalated the situation and he managed to like extricate himself from this situation. It was a very interesting interview. If I remember, I'll, I'll link it up on our, on our chat, but 
the point that I'm the point of why I'm mentioning this is because it is an absolute rare talent to have the ability to do this. What it says here, a wise man will pacify it. How to resist the temptation. Um, just making myself a note to send you guys that interview. Um, to not get sucked into the emotionality of the moment. To resist the urge to meet the level of inflamed passions and emotionality of the people who are attacking you or accusing you but rather to stay calm and to stay in your mind and to have the ability to de-escalate a situation. And what's amazing about that, it is such a quality of leadership to be able to do that. Because if you think about it, when, when rage is inflamed all around you and your emotional state rises to meet that, that is the definition of being a follower. Somebody else has set the emotional temperature and you're like, okay, yes, I'll do that too. It's like being a blind follower, actually. Whereas if someone sets the emotional temperature high and you say to yourself, that's not going to be helpful or constructive. So I'm going to set the emotional temperature at moderate. You're leading the way. And you're inviting other people to follow your lead and to go where you're going, right? My husband and I always have this conversation when we're walking together. He he has very long legs. And he walks usually fast. You set the pace, which is such a say, right? You set the pace. So I, I, I walk slower, right? And I feel like that's such a great metaphor. You set the pace. Don't just follow someone else's pace. They're going fast, you go fast. No, if someone's going fast, you could say, you know, I'm not comfortable going this fast. We need to slow down. Or if somebody's dragging their feet on something that's important to you, right? And you could say, I'm not comfortable with this pace. I'd like to get a little bit more energetic about this project. Can we move a little faster? You don't have to match the energy of the person next to you. You set the pace, right? And he calls it in this verse, Ishacham, that's a wise person that a wise person has the wisdom to be able to pacify anger instead of matching it or meeting it where it is. Okay. Hi, Larissa, welcome. Yes, Jamie. Would this count as um, where you get married if you restrain yourself? Yeah. That you can ascribe to even someone else? Like you can, uh, ascribe not the white like you can give the merit to someone else who maybe needs some something. Remember you told Yeah, yeah, no, I know what you're talking about, but tell me, I'm not sure how it connects to what we're talking about. So you told us that like if a person is restrained. Oh, like yes. Like you, you get a merit that you could give to someone else. Maybe. Yes. Or Absolutely. Help. That is exactly what this is. Like if you think about that college professor in the midst of all these students and they are absolutely like inflamed, screaming and yelling and insulting and humiliating him. Right. So the line, the, the, the line in the Talmud is ovim. those who are insulted, but do not insult back. So to maintain that calm, right. And the Midrash says that that person's spiritual reward is so great that even the angels cannot fathom that spiritual reward. So yes, thank you. That is exactly the same thing. I appreciate you pointing that out. 
It's nun ayin lamid bet ve'enum ovim and do not insult in return. Laha'aliv means to insult. So, and, and it requires, well, it requires an incredible amount of emotional strength for sure, but it also requires, as it says in this verse, wisdom, because you have to be aware that it's even happening. If you're not paying attention, your default mode is going to be to match the other person's energy. Well, they're, they're getting super angry. So now I'm getting super defensive and now I'm going to hurl an insult back. That's, that's what happens when you're not paying attention right? But where you've been educated and where you have wisdom, you will say, okay, here's what's happening now. Everybody's getting very inflamed. I don't need to get inflamed too. In fact, I don't want to get inflamed. I want to stay calm in the middle of all this chaos, right? I want to set the pace. I don't want to follow someone else's pace. So yeah. Okay. Let's go to the commentary. The term chema, so that's the word used in this verse for rage, right? Hamat Melech, the rage or wrath of a king, right? It's it's a very powerful form of anger. Anger, like all midot, like all character traits and like all emotions, exists on a continuum, right? You know how people say, I'm not angry, I'm just irritated. Or I'm not angry, I'm just kind of annoyed. So annoyed and irritated are on the anger spectrum, right? Agreed, they're not as far along on the spectrum as rage, right? Rage is all the way over there on the anger meter, but it's on the meter, right? Annoyed is mild anger. So let's just, you know, know what it is. This term chema is like a furious anger. It's, it's over there. It's closer to the 10. Okay. The term chema denotes an intense inner unexpressed anger. So this is where you're flaming on the inside right? It's, it's, it's a lot. It boils within you. In an ordinary person, it need have no dire effects. Why? Because as long as you can control yourself from doing anything or saying anything, think about that college professor in the midst of that whole demonstration, right? Chances are his emotions were boiling on the inside. I think he even said so on the interview. He, he said to the interviewer, I'm glad you think I was so calm. I was not. I just managed to act calm, right? And that's good enough, right? We can't ex expect ourselves to have this perfect emotional equilibrium on the outside, but we are asked to control our responses and reactions externally. So in an ordinary person, it need have no dire effects. The wrath of a king, however, can wreak destruction. Why? Because a king has so much power. So if it leaks out even a little bit, it can have dire consequences. Now, did I send you guys, or was this in a different class, the video of the mom on President's Day, and she was talking about how every, uh, I sent it to you guys, right, because we were talking about the king, how every mom is like the president of her household. Did you guys watch that video? Oh my gosh, it was so funny. So I was thinking that a mother is definitely like a king, especially when your kids are little, because you have so much power. Then you get older and you realize you have actually no power at all. But <laughs> when the kids are little, you, but the truth is you do have power. You have a lot of emotional power as a mom, right? Even when our kids are grown, right? I always say this, I'm 48 years old. I have not outgrown the need 
for my mother's approval and love. I'll never outgrow it. Even after our parents are gone, we want to know that they loved us and approved of us and appreciated us, right? So for a parent who's like a king in her little fiefdom, unexpressed anger can be really dangerous. You can say, right, why? Because first of all, it's so likely that if you don't manage to keep it under control, it will boil over at some point and you can really, you can really cause a lot of damage. So we want, so that, that's what he's saying in, in, in the wrath of a king, however, it can wreak, it can wreak, the wrath of a king, however, can wreak destruction. A wise person must be found who will know how to appease his fury. So when you find yourself starting to boil over with rage on the inside, you need to figure out what calms you down when you get there. You need to have a contingency plan right? Is there a person in your life who knows how to talk you off the ledge? Is there an activity that you do that makes you feel calm? Is it getting out in nature? Is it meditating? Is it breathing? Is it running? Is it exercising? Whatever it is for you, but you should know, you should have a plan for when that happens so that there can be a pacification plan. Now, aside from all this being true, literally, this verse is also a metaphor. Right? As, as we find many cases throughout this text. Metaphorically, this also refers to divine wrath, which can arouse angels of destruction. What does that mean? That means that when God sees, you know, bad people getting away with murder in this world, it's like God's wrath is inflamed. So when we say Melech, the king, we're also talking about God, who is the king of the universe, right? So when God gets angry, okay, and God has made absolutely no secret of the things that gets him angry, right? The, the, this verse tells us many things. God hates dishonesty. God hates cruelty, right? God tells us very clearly what is going to make him angry. So when God gets that angry, be careful because the Malachim of us, that angel of destruction is right around the corner, right? But a wise person knows how to how to placate God's anger, what to do to bring more goodness into the world, what to do to bring more merit into this world. So here at the end of the verse, um, the commentary, Malbim quotes the story of Pinchas. Someone like Pinchas can turn his wrath away. What's the story of Pinchas? So this is a story that happened in the desert as the Jews were wandering around in 40 years in the desert. And the king of Moab, some of you may be familiar with this story, who was an enemy of the Jews, really, really, really wanted to harm the Jews. Okay, which unfortunately, uh, you know, that's not a new story. And it's a current story of people who want to harm the Jews. So first, and again, some of you might remember this story, he hired a prophet, uh, a for-profit prophet, he hired Bilam to uh, curse the Jews. And Bilam says, listen, I, you know, I can't only say what God wants me to say. I'll try to curse the Jews, you know, and I'll certainly pocket your generous uh, compensation package. But, you know, I can only say what God wants me to say. And then the story goes that Bilam, he goes to this mountaintop where he feels like he's going to be able to commune with God. And he opens his mouth. And instead of curses, blessings come out of his mouth. Right. And he says, how wonderful are your tents, Israel? You guys know that song? Matovu Right. You guys familiar with that song? That's one of the blessings that Bilam said. 
when he was actually trying to curse the Jews. How wonderful are your tents, O Israel? And he gives them all these blessings. And the king of Moab gets so angry at him. What are you doing? He said, listen, I told you, okay, there's limits in this business. I can't talk whatever God does. Anyway, that happened several times. And finally he says, okay, you're fired. I'm done with you. But the king of Moab is still not content because he still has not harmed the Jews. And then he got this brilliant idea. He is going to hire the daughters of Moab. So his own country's young women to get out there and sexually seduce the Jewish men. Because he says, I know what makes God mad. Sexual promiscuity makes God mad. If we want to get God mad at the Jewish people, that's what we should do. So that's what he did. He sent out his country's own daughters to be basically prostitutes, which is a pretty low, disgusting thing to do. And unfortunately, this time the plan works and many Jews succumbed to this temptation. And uh, the Torah says that the, the leader of the tribe of Shimon, I think it was, sinned with this Moabite princess. And the two of them are having this whole orgy in public. And God's anger was very, very inflamed, just as it says in this verse. And then Pinchas, who was a descendant of Aaron, the high priest, who are usually icons of peace, right? The, 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 the Aaron was very much a role model for pursuing peace. Pinchas came over and he took a spear and he shot it through the two of them. I mean, that's really good aim. And the two of them died on the spot. And the Torah says that he sanctified God's name by punishing these people. And he was the one who placated God's anger. And God said, I'm giving you my blessing of peace. And you are now going to be the ancestor of all other priests. Very, very intense story, right? Uh, and not something that any, any of us are ever going to be asked to do. But the lesson for us is that when we see evil bad behavior, injustice, infidelity, um, disgusting behavior, and we do nothing, we are contributing to God's anger. But if we can take a stand in whatever form that might take in our life, in our abilities, in our sphere of influence, if we can do something to protest evil, to, to, um, to stop this kind of bad behavior, then we are a party to placating God's anger, so to speak, and to lowering that, that intensity and to bringing more peace into the world. So this verse is true literally, and it's also a metaphor for God and for helping to bring more peace and more calm into the world. Okay, thoughts or comments here? Well, so are we saying that we should be um, aspiring to be the person like the college professor who even as people are throwing rage and insults our way, we're gonna lower the temperature of the room? And wouldn't that in fact be less godlike if God himself can't <laughs> do it and needs somebody to placate him like Pinchas or? So it's not that God can't do it. It's this is a Kabbalistic concept that God contracts his own sphere of influence in order to give human beings the space to exercise their own free will and to step up. 
So God wanted to see which could God have intervened and caused this, you know, prince and princess to die on the spot. Of course he could, but what would that have accomplished? God wanted to give them the opportunity to step up and to say something. So, you know, we use terms like anger for God, but we make a mistake if we think that it's the same as human anger. Human anger is about being out of control. God is never out of control. We use the term anger because it's a term that we can understand and that we can relate to, right? Um, But one of the things the Torah also tells us is that God's anger has a very, very long fuse, right? That God waits a very long time before getting angry and that he gives people an opportunity to change, to fix it, to do better. Or as we've said in this story, he gives other people the opportunity to step up and intervene and to see what that's going to bring about, you know, whereas in human anger, right? And that's why this is a metaphor. It's not an exact parallel, you know, in human anger, very often a person can't stop or can't wait until somebody else is able to deescalate. So similar, but not exactly the same. Michelle. So I, so I was going to ask, can this be uh, like a synonym to how we can, exp- well, to the best of our ability, explain how the Holocaust, God did not intervene because he was waiting for more goodness to come mm-hmm. out of people t- to start helping uh, intervene in the Holocaust. So in the four minutes that we have left, I cannot do justice to your question. And I probably, if I had a lifetime, I couldn't do justice to your question. Um, That's obviously a very, very complicated topic. I will say this. There is a gentleman whose name is Rabbi Usher Wade, and he converted to Judaism. He grew up German, I believe. I think he was actually a German pastor. I have to look him up to, to, because I haven't, I haven't um, heard of him, heard about him in in a long time. But when I was living in Israel 25 years ago, um, he was a tour guide at Yad Vashem after he became Jewish and he moved to Israel. And one of the things he used to say in his tours was he used to say, people always ask, where was God in the Holocaust? He said, I'd like to ask the question differently. Where was man in the Holocaust? You know, because we're never really going to be able to grasp the answer to the question, where was God in the Holocaust? How did God allow such mass destruction to happen? How did God allow so many evil people? You know, I was just reading some stats on Yom HaShoah, you know, Holocaust Remembrance Day as it's observed in Israel. And here are some stats that I read, which I I never saw it put quite this way. Two out of every three European Jews were murdered. 91% of Polish Jews were murdered. 80 something percent of Lithuanian Jews were murdered. I mean, these are really beyond, beyond chilling statistics. And particularly in the Torah world, if you think about the scholarship, the texts, the books, the teaching, the writing of Torah that was disseminated in Europe before the Holocaust, And after the Holocaust, it was a graveyard. The locus of Torah study was not in Europe anymore. It moved to Israel and to the United States, right? And you read these stats and you're like, how could God let that happen? So what Rabbi Usher Wade says is, 
we're not going to know the answer to that question. We're never, if, like I said, if we talk about it for a whole lifetime, we're not going to really know the answer to that question. But then he says, but let's ask, where was man in the Holocaust? You know, and let's talk about the people who did step up and the people who didn't step up and how, how the Jews, you know, the stories of quiet heroism in the, in the, uh, in the Holocaust. I mean, I'll just tell you one super quick story about my own grandmother who passed away a couple months ago. And she, um, she came from a family of five and three of her siblings and her mother were killed in the Holocaust. So it was just her and a brother and her father who survived. And in the camps after her sisters were gone, there was a woman who was the daughter of a prominent rabbi. And she came over, she saw my, my grandmother and she said to my grandmother, I know that you don't have any more sisters. I'm going to be, she called it your Lagerschwester. Lagerschwester in Yiddish means your camp sister. That's what they called it, their lager, the camps. She said, I'm going to be your, your, your camp sister. And she looked after her. My, my grandmother was like a young teen in the Holocaust. She looked after her. She took care of her. She looked after her. After the war was over, she followed her in America and she kept up with her. She made sure that she got married and, um, and they stayed close, you know? And I mean, you could get bogged down by this like divine wrath that we're talking about here and so many horrible things that happened. And those are questions that we should definitely think about, but we should also be looking at the second part of the story with who out there is bringing down that wrath and who out there is doing beautiful things in the face of indescribable ugliness. Cause that's something that we can understand. And that's something that we can grasp. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, ladies. So I have a question for next time. Um, okay. Cause I know you have to leave and I'll yeah. say it out loud. So maybe someone will remember like I'm the fact that we are, we're supposed to do something when we see something's not right or like there's a false leader, a false prophet, something like that. So yeah. I just want to go back to explain how Joseph's brothers yeah. probably thought they were doing the right thing because uh -huh. they thought the sky's a megalomaniac. Yeah. Um, so if we can talk about that next time and how it pertains to okay. the, what you just got wrote. it. Thank you. I have recorded your question. <laughs> Thank you. On my, on my little low tech post-it note. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Okay, ladies, thanks for being flexible with my schedule. Have a lovely afternoon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for next week. Thank Bye guys. Thank have you. Thanks for participating.